Chapter 52, The Holy Land, An Inner Journey Please follow me, the customs official said in English, taking our documents. My heart raced. Friends who had visited Israel had warned us that the Israeli security forces may not allow us to enter if they saw stamps from Syria and Lebanon in our passports. We followed the official through the vast and modern airport that, at that late hour of the night, was packed with travelers. At a nearby office, she stopped and knocked on the door. Two young women, looking no older than 25 and wearing dark green military fatigues, answered. They exchanged a few words, and the official who had escorted us handed them our passports and left. We stepped into a staid space with only a metal desk and several chairs. They flipped through our passports, examining each stamp carefully. I thought my heart would burst through my chest, but tried to keep a calm demeanor. Why are you here? One of them asked in a professional tone. My voice quivered, but quickly recovered when I saw the women smile at my explanation. They seemed surprised that we were refused entry at the Lebanese border. I don't understand why they didn't let you cross, one said. We have no problem with you entering our country. I had assumed it was the Israelis who would not allow us to enter and never considered that the Lebanese would not allow us to leave. I wondered what other misconceptions lay in wait for me. The women were respectful, and although we spent a long time speaking with them, I wasn't sure we touched their hearts. I sensed a fatigue in them of perhaps hearing one too many people speaking about peace. On December the 15th, 2002, we officially entered the State of Israel with a three-month visa. The women guided us to a tourist information kiosk where we picked up a map of Israel and train schedules. From the long list of accommodations listed, we chose one at random and booked a room. We cleared more security checks before finally stepping outside of the airport. The Tel Aviv night was damp, but not our enthusiasm. We had arrived. The following morning, we boarded a taxi to the Tel Aviv train station. Our destination was Haifa, the most northerly Israeli town, about 40 kilometers south of Lebanon, and where our walk through Israel would begin. The message of peace did not cross this border, but it would come as close as it could. What most struck me about Tel Aviv was just how green it was. I had always imagined Israel to be a desert, and was surprised to see manicured parks and colorful gardens among the vast trees and modern buildings. The crowds and traffic reminded me of any large city. However, the men and women with machine guns slung on their backs did not. Most of them looked like students, but carrying machine guns rather than school bags. Many were dressed in military fatigues, but the vast majority wore street clothing. I had only ever seen the Palestinian face of the conflict and their suffering. For the first time, however, looking out of the back seat of our taxi, I started to think about how this conflict was affecting the Israeli people. I wondered what it must feel like to live in terror every day, not knowing if the next bus they boarded or car that they walked past was going to explode. I began to understand their fear, and for the first time in my life, to feel empathy for them. So where are you from? The taxi driver asked. 
we briefly explained. He glanced over his shoulder at us and laughed. You are so naive, he said, shaking his head. Palestinians don't want peace. They only want us dead. Certainly not all Palestinians, I asked. The radicals are the real problem, he pronounced. You cannot negotiate with them. It's all or nothing with them. We want to live in peace, but those radicals won't rest until we're all driven to the sea. The only solution is to terminate all those extremists. The intensity of his emotions took my breath away. Do you really think the conflict will end if you exterminate that minority? Alberto asked intently. The man did not respond or turn around. He drove us in silence, his jaw set and his eyes fixed ahead. At the train station, he surprised us with his well wishes for a safe journey and even helped us to put on our backpacks. I sat on the train, mesmerized by the number of people carrying machine guns. I had never seen a weapon up close. It looked like a toy. Sitting so close to them, however, I wasn't sure I felt safer. In fact, the longer I sat, the more unsafe I began to feel. None of them looked around nervously or seemed to be on the lookout for terrorists. They read their books and newspapers, stared out distractedly upon the passing landscape, or fell asleep while sitting. The scene could have been taken out of any train in Europe or North America. I glanced nervously at any person who boarded the train, wondering if they were a potential suicide bomber. Everyone was suspect. I began to feel claustrophobic and wanted to get off the train. I expressed my fears to Alberto in Spanish. I don't think we've walked almost 5,000 kilometers to get blown up on a train, he said. If we do, well then I guess our work here was done and it was our time to go. He was so annoyingly right sometimes. I looked away from the guns and the people and focused instead on the passing scenery. I was more relaxed by the time we arrived in Haifa, but hurried off the train. In the taxi that brought us to our hostel, the amiable driver enthusiastically supported our walk. Your message of peace will be well received here, he assured us. Don't be afraid. Go to Jerusalem. It is safe there. My first day in Israel, this holy land that I had walked so far and so long to get to, was now over. I had witnessed events that challenged my established views of Israel and its people and revealed my prejudices. I could no longer claim with certainty that the Palestinians were the most afflicted in this conflict or so easily dismiss as unreasonable the Israeli response. The most aggressive people I knew usually held the deepest fears, typically the fear of loss. It was easy to see how much Israelis had to lose not only land, but a dream that had driven them here throughout the centuries. It was also easy to understand their desire to defend at all costs. Do you think we should carry the sign? I asked Alberto. I'm not sure, he responded. Me either, I added. I don't know what's right or wrong anymore. My heart is heavy and I feel like weeping at a time when I should be celebrating. When I first started walking, I only wanted to shout this message of peace from the rooftops. But now that I'm here, my voice is weak, my certainty is shaken. I feel the need to listen rather than speak and to walk in silence. 
I also feel nervous, to be honest. This is an emotionally charged place, and I'm not sure how our message will be received. I have my concerns too, he responded. The emotions are powerful here, but more than that, I feel the need to reflect on my journey and prefer to walk inwardly as well. We agreed to walk without the sign and to remain open to the possibility of carrying it again. For now, the outer way of peace would cede passage to the inner way. On December the 17th of 2002, after more than two weeks without walking, Alberto and I took our first steps out of Haifa. We cleared the city easily and followed the coast. We garnered many stairs, but without our signs, we must have looked like two strange people walking along the side of the road. No one spoke to us, no one stopped us. We had as much tranquility as a busy thoroughfare could afford. We stayed in a youth hostel in Tirat Carmel that night and continued southwards the next day towards Zichron Yaakov. Greenery dominated the landscape, which, with the cool weather, made for an enjoyable walk. Security, however, continued to be a visible force everywhere, even in places as ordinary as McDonald's. We arrived at the turnoff for the town and were disheartened to learn that it was five kilometers uphill and away from the main road. Alberto mentioned that he was receiving signs to pay attention. And so we stood at the bus stop and waited. Within a few minutes, a small car bearing a young couple stopped. Would you like a lift to the top? The driver, a 20-something man, asked in English. We immediately accepted. With our bags in the trunk, we got in the car and introduced ourselves. Ah, you are from Spain, the man named Devere replied in Spanish, going on to explain that he had backpacked all over Central and South America and so recognized Alberto's accent. I stopped because I thought you were backpackers, he exclaimed when we told him we had just walked from Rome. With your funny white clothes, I didn't think too many people were going to stop and help you. We explained yet again the bleaching accident to a chuckling Devere, a kind man with whom we felt immediately at ease. He drove us to a hostel, apologizing that his home was too small to accommodate visitors. We assured him that we were grateful for his help and accepted his invitation to meet his family later that evening. At the appointed time, Devere arrived and drove us the short distance to his home. There, we met his lovely wife, Anat, and their toddler son. We were thrilled to discover that they were yoga teachers and that they had traveled throughout India when Anat was pregnant. I sensed from our conversation fellow seekers, explorers walking a path of self-discovery just like us, so it came as no surprise that we shared similar open spiritual views. How can you live your open spirituality in such a religiously charged country? I asked. Don't believe all that you read and hear, Anat declared. There's a growing spiritual movement in this country, but it's underground for now. They are seekers like us, people challenging all the traditional beliefs and creating a new spirituality based on openness, tolerance, and above all else, love. They are reaching across the religions and finding what unites us rather than what separates us. Trust me, you are not alone in your beliefs and not as foolish as you think carrying your message of peace. 
Although Alberto and I had agreed not to carry our sign, our meeting with this young couple changed our minds. We saw an opportunity to add our voices to the voices of those already creating a new spirituality and foundation for peace. Our sign would proclaim one word, peace, written in the three languages of the land, English, Arabic, and Hebrew. Peace, salam, and shalom would now share the same space on our backpack. As the evening began to wind down, Devere mentioned that his family owned an apartment in Jerusalem and offered for us to stay there while the family was out of town. We happily accepted, once again feeling the magic of the way and the forces of the universe at work facilitating our path in this divided land. I felt inspired as never before and looked forward to carrying our new sign. We pressed on to Hadira the following day and then passed Kafar Saba to Ramla, moving increasingly inland. In Ramla, we finally found the sticky paper that we needed to cut out our new sign. It wasn't the attention-grabbing yellow that we had carried since Italy, but a light blue that contrasted against our dark plastic covers. Once cut out, the words looked spectacular. We started eastwards the next morning towards Latrun, and if all went well, we would enter Jerusalem the following day. I walked excitedly, proud to be carrying our new sign again. Our path took us along a quiet country road that cut through orchards, vineyards, and open fields. The occasional farmhouse and small village dotted our route, but otherwise, It was the heavenly scent of flowers and the fresh breeze that carried it on that lovely December morning that accompanied us. For some reason, I decided to walk behind Alberto for a while and was appreciating the beauty and the precision with which he had cut out the letters. One of the letters was peeling off slightly, so I asked Alberto to stop and press the letter back on tightly. I patted his backpack and he continued ahead. Moments later, another letter began to peel off and was barely hanging by the time I reached it. I stuck it back on firmly, but within a few more steps, even more letters began falling to the ground. I picked them up one by one, trying to stick them back on again, but they wouldn't stay. What is going on? I moaned the letters dangling between my fingers. Alberto shook his head in disbelief. Slowly, sadly, I took the remaining letters off, gingerly folded the covering, and placed everything inside the backpack. It was the first time this had ever happened, and I despondently wondered why it should happen now when we were so close to our destination. We spent that night in a monastery in Latrun, In a fond return to our early days of walking in Italy, we had beds and a hearty meal, but no heating or hot water. It seemed that the closer we were getting to the end, the closer we were to the beginning. The monk who had shown us to our room stopped by later that evening to see how we were doing and mentioned that we were in the ancient site of Immaus, the place where Jesus appeared to two of his disciples after his resurrection. Something about that name, Imaus, was familiar, and so after he left, I searched through my diary. Do you remember Father Natalino in Venice? I enthused. Alberto nodded. 
he told us that we reminded him of a painting in his church called Supper at Emmaus. We are in Emmaus, and this is our last supper before arriving in Jerusalem. This is no coincidence, Alberto said. And on top of that, tomorrow is Christmas Eve, I enthused. You know, Moni, I always wondered why the disciples never recognized Jesus after walking all the way to Emmaus with him, Alberto said. If I recall the story correctly, the disciples thought that they were walking with another pilgrim. They were lamenting to him the events of Jerusalem and expressing their disappointment that Jesus was not the Savior that they had hoped for. In spite of all that Jesus had taught them, it was only at supper, when he blessed the bread before breaking it, that they finally recognized him. What do you mean? I asked. Well, I was thinking that this passage seems to be yet another parable that Jesus told, a metaphor that holds a deep mystical teaching. The Christ was with them the whole time, but they were incapable of seeing it. The story doesn't refer to Jesus per se, but to the inner Christ, the divine consciousness that resides in each and every one of us. That is our true self, that, invisible to the eyes, waits to be acknowledged. Jesus was a great master who had fully unfolded his inner Christ. He overcame death as the ultimate demonstration of his control over physical matter, of his power to manipulate and transcend this illusion. It's a power that he promised we all had. That's all a wizard is, someone who sees the world with the eyes of the soul, who seeks beyond this reality. It's someone who occupies himself with mastering his inner world, and once he does, his outer world changes in consequence. I think that's why we both feel the need to walk in silence right now. We need to bring our outer message of peace to our inner world, to focus on the inner transformation. We have said these words so often that peace begins within. And now, on the eve of walking into Jerusalem, we're being reminded of it in a very powerful way. Maybe that's why the letters fell today, I reflected. Is it possible that this walk was never about peace in Jerusalem? I gasped at the thought. Is it possible that it was only a means to get me to create peace in my inner world?